Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. This podcast is part of an online community library we're developing, one that contains podcasts, videos, transcripts and booklets based on Michael's talks. The goal of this library and this podcast is to bring mindfulness and mental health into the spotlight. Through this work, we're creating new ways to wake up through socially engaged, conscious, spiritual practice. We're creating a culture of compassion and collaboration. We've left our physical monasteries and we're bringing them online. Before we get to today's podcast, I want to take a moment to ask you to consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon. Pledging is easy and can be as little as $1 per month. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Michaelstone and click on the big orange button on the top right of the page. Thank you for listening. So to recap, finding your way or finding your place in each and every moment is the heart of this practice. And this means taking care of others. And because others are not separate from you, taking care of yourself is the same job. Sometimes I think we find it easier to take care of others than we do uh, taking care of ourselves. But then over time we realize that it's not really taking care of others unless we're taking care of ourselves. Because Buddha and sentient beings are one. And so you take care of yourself like you're a Buddha and you take care of other Buddhas and because of impermanence, um, it really matters. Because of impermanence, taking care of yourself really matters. Because, uh, Koan, the wonderful uh, Korean poet, is he still alive? He actually spent quite a lot of his life in prison. If you've ever seen photographs of him, he has no ears. They were burned off with acid when he was in prison. Um, he has a beautiful poem where he says, um, Some people are thinking of their next life. Other people are working on their past lives. On a windy day, I'm waiting for the bus. Mm -hmm. On a hot afternoon, we are fully in 128 body. Nothing about your past life is going to help you with your 128 body. And nothing about your future life is going to affect the way you're in relation with 128 body.
And to find that place where we have commonality with all sentient beings and with all of their delusions is um, Buddha nature or the Buddha Dharma. And this extends to all commonality, just like the birds that are breathing right now doing their pranic and aponic practice, just like the frogs and the samanic value inside of them, just like the way these sheaths of the koshas exist both in the squirrels and in us, um, in all sentient beings finding that commonality. And although it's not traditional, and people would argue about this, everything is a sentient being. Literally, the traditional definition is anything with one sense organ. But trees are sentient beings. In fact, there's a movement right now in Thailand that's very controversial, which are some monks are holding ordination ceremonies for trees. They're taking saffron robes, and they're doing the full ordination ceremony that they would to ordain a monk with all the old trees in northern Thailand. Um, and then that tree is considered a monk, a full Buddha, so that when you walk by the tree, you stop and you bow down to the tree, and you offer alms to the tree, that the tree requires, like water and so on. And then by watching these awakened beings taking care of this other awakened being, then you become awake to the interconnection between these ordained monks and these ordained monks. So we practice with all sentient beings, and they are all awakened. Everything. Anybody who says that a tree is not a sentient being has not hung out with trees and has been too busy in monasteries, in books. And this is controversial because they're saying, well, how can you ordain a tree? Because they can't be monks because they're not sentient beings. And these monks are taking a really strong position here and saying, yes, the trees are sentient beings. They're sentient beings. So maybe this is a practice we could do. Maybe you can find the trees that are most at risk in your neighborhood, and you can ordain them. Just in, like go at night. No one even has to know. You just pick a couple friends and do a little ceremony. And then that tree, will, it, will, it will give back to you. It already is, but it's invisible. You don't know it's giving back to you until it's gone. <clears throat> As all things are Buddha Dharma, there is delusion and realization. And what you do with your delusions is you raise them up. So they become the fuel for your realization. So this is what we're exploring together, that commonality, that common ground. So I want to go way deeper into this. But first, let's open it up. What's happening for you? 
when you hear these words of Dogen, these words of encouragement that are meant to inspire you and also to rattle you a little bit. His humor is just about to kick in, but it's not quite there. But you can feel it. You can feel like a punchline coming, you know. Don't read ahead, please. So what what's happened for you? Well, I read um, Yet an Attachment Blossom's Fall in an aversion piece, right? Like a uh-huh. metaphor for your life. So if you really attach to the beautiful things, they're obviously going to fall and disappear. But if you're not paying attention to the other areas that need attention, Mm -hmm. then weeds will grow there. Mm. So So like if you're just on the blossom side, then the weeds start spreading? Yeah. Mm, Interesting. Yeah. So don't pay attention just to the wonderful things. Pay attention to the difficult things as well. Yeah. Or the ugly or less attractive things also need your attention. Yeah. I'm curious about, um, in the first sentence, it says there's delusion and realization, mm-hmm. those two, and then there's practice and birth and death, <coughs> and like how those come together, like, like, like steadfastness and then stuff that's in flux, mm-hmm. opposite each other. Uh-huh. Is that, is that part of the translation that it's just, I think maybe it's just the translation because it wasn't. Practice seems to sit in the middle. On the one side, there's delusion and realization. On the other side, birth and death. And in the middle is this practice. That's how I read it. Practice is this, is this real thing. And yet, at the same time, it's interesting that he starts off saying, there is practice, because what motivated him to do this? What motivated this? Do you remember the question? What was the question? Yeah. Do you want me to read that again? His words? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm gonna, actually, I'll read a different translation. Um, As I study both the exoteric and esoteric schools of Buddhism, They maintain that human beings are endowed with dharma nature by birth. If this is the case, why do Buddhas of all ages, undoubtedly in possession of enlightenment, find it necessary to seek enlightenment and engage in spiritual practice? Interesting. Yeah, I never picked up on that. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. 
of his other teachings, he's talking about sitting meditation. Um, this comes after a lengthy essay about how to sit. So um, he is definitely talking about the formal practice of sitting meditation. So I think, yes, we can start to expand it to other things. But right now, I would say that in the context of his teaching at this time, he's talking about sitting still. Yeah. Reminding me of um, uh, the study in Buddha um, uh, without, Buddha without, um, Buddhism without borders, beliefs. <laughs> yeah. Buddhism without beliefs and doctors without beliefs. Well, that was a study, and he said. Um, to ponder um, death is inevitable. Um, time of your death is unknown. What should I do? Yeah. And so so <clears throat> for me, as it is already now, to bring back emotions immediately think of my children and the death of them is just um, you know inconceivable so I can see how I cling and control and I can see how they are not fully expressed when I do that Between um, loving yeah. and abandonment. 
Yeah. Is that independent? Mm -hmm. And it's, and I think also because of that, it overcompensated. Sure. So there, it sounds like you're making a link too between your own experience of being able to look at death and separation, and then how our own ability to do that then relates to how we can do that with other people. Mm. Yeah. I'm not going to go too far into it now, but you know, I teach clinicians a lot. You know, and one thing that always comes up when we're talking about death is how it's sort of built into our culture, medical culture. I'm talking about, and the legal culture within the medical world, how much work we have to do to prevent death, and how much that actually shuts down room in your 40 minutes with somebody to really talk about death and the inevitability of death. Because we have so many places that we need to get covered, like especially if someone wants to take their own life. Um, we don't have time to talk about what's going on for them because we have to do a contract for safety, all these legal things to make sure that, because it's illegal to take your own life. Um, and how much that's related to our own fear of death, culturally, collectively, and how that gets internalized. You can't separate them. So you could say that, that, that looking into your own attachments is of great benefit to your kids, right? And it's not naively saying, well, if you just let go. My son last night, he's wearing croc, those shoes Crocs which are like the most dangerous shoes you could ever buy. And when he wears Crocs, he wants to run down hills as fast as possible. And so I tell him to take off the Crocs and then run down the hill. But it's not as much fun, because then you're really stable. But when you wear Crocs, like your ankles are really vulnerable, and then it's really, really fun. And um, he knows he can go faster without them, but it's not as, it's not as good. There's another hand up over it. Yeah. I just can't get my head around this. Like the idea that you have to have a formal practice to <clears throat> to experience or to, to be awake. I feel like I've seen people who don't and who maybe it's just my own perception they seem uh -huh. connected. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, great, but are you? <laughs> and so, yeah, so in a way that's, the, that's philosophy. Um, we're here this month because we have some suffering and some discontent in our lives. I'm sure there are other people who are awake and have no practice and it's amazing, and, but that's not us. Or... Maybe this practice is a complete joke because we're all awake and studying this practice actually makes us feel like we're deluded when we're not really. Or maybe we're not even here. And this is actually just a dream. And somebody who's awake is just having this as a daydream and actually are realizing it. And as they do, they're realizing that they're in someone else's dream who is having a dream 
that they are having a dream, that we are here having this dream. Because you can't actually know that you're awake until you're awake. So you can't actually know that you are dreaming until you actually wake up. This is the problem. So how do you know you're awake? You could lose the dream. When you answer that question, <laughs> you can stop practicing. The other thing was the idea of like ordinary, ordinary, ordinary mind. Ordinary mind. Yeah. So we make all these distinctions, like some things actually seem, like you put more work into certain things and they seem more special, I guess. So is that yeah. a delusion? Like is that? Hmm. Yeah, that's a good question. You know what? Let's leave the question open, because this is exactly what he's going to talk about. Do you want to just articulate it one more time? Um, <laughs> <laughs> the idea of, of ordinary mind. Yes. And so we, we start making these distinctions about what is special. Yeah. Or, or you put more work into something. So to me, that seems like some things are just ordinary. Yeah. I don't know. Something like that. But is it a delusion? Uh-huh. It's a really good question. What is more ordinary than your inhale and your exhale? And yet we make it so special. How much are you paying to be here? <laughs> to specialize in inhaling and exhaling, really. And yet it's the most ordinary thing. The most ordinary. And yet, when you really look at it, a whole universe is right there in the breath. It's like saying, I know about impermanence. I see the, the season changing. And then someone passes away. And then someone you know gets hurt, and you're visiting them in the hospital. And you say, but it's not, what's going on? Like, uh, I was just talking to them. Uh, and then it's different to know impermanence than to just philosophize about it. And one of the ways we can really see this level of experience consistently is in our practice. Let's, should we keep going and hear what he has to say? Can we keep going? And then if there's more questions, we can. To carry yourself forward and experience myriad things, sometimes that's translated as 10,000 things, is delusion. That 10,000 things come forward and experience themselves is awakening. So just to be clear, you can't go into the perspective of a tree and say when the tree experiences herself, she is awakened. Listen closely to what he's saying. If you go for... Should I try that again? If you go forward into experience, you go forward into the world and you name everything. And you know. And you're convinced and you know the myriad things, you know that there's 10,000 things. He's saying this is actually delusion. Or 
when you go into the world and then you let the world come forward, this is awakening. He doesn't say it's enlightenment. He doesn't say this is God. He doesn't say you get reborn. He says you get awakened. Awakened by what? So this is the like non-formal practice. Everything. 10,000 things. 100,000 things. 400,000 things. 10 million things. When you go forward towards those things, it's a delusion. And when you allow them to come forward, this is, it reminds me of the first quote of the workshop about letting things come forward with meaning and purpose from their side. And, but he's not done. He, he's gonna, here comes his humor. Those who have great realization about delusion are Buddhas. Those who are greatly deluded about realization are sentient beings. Further, there are those who continually realize beyond realization, who are in delusion throughout delusion. Should we unpack that a little bit? Those who have great realization of delusion are Buddhas. What does that mean? Someone who hasn't spoken yet. Those who have great realization of delusion are Buddhas. What does that mean? Great? Just when you see what it is for what it is, no more and no less. Uh-huh. <laughs> and then those who are, when he follows and says, those who are greatly deluded about realization are such a means, because you make realization all this big thing. Uh-huh. It's not. Uh-huh. And when he goes further, it's, you realize, and then you go like, but there's something else that's really special. Uh-huh. It's not. Uh-huh. Everything's just that. And oh. it's two opposites at the same time. Uh-huh. To me. Hmm. Can somebody give an example from their own life? What does this mean? In your life, can you give an example? Can you give an example of being, having great realization about your delusion and becoming awake? I don't know, in my kind of work, you know, I work with uh, children with autism, yeah. and the autism is often put into a box, you know, and then we generalize. So often we see all the children from this perspective because of this. They're all autistic. Yeah, they're yeah. all autistic. You know. Today, you're actually talking about having autism instead of being autistic. That's like a new term because uh-huh. it's to try to get people to think out of this box. Mm-hmm. And I think often I experience it. That uh, when I teach children, because I, I just see the autism, and then whatever they do uh-huh. is autistic. Yeah. And for example, recently actually we were in this room and it was very hot, and there was a fan, and one of my students, and he's one, he, he's a little, or again, my uh, interpretation of him is that he's a little bit hypochondriac, and he often you know, has these things about his songs to avoid doing homework and stuff. and then. The same this day, you know, the fan was right next to him, and then all of a sudden he turned it off. And I was like, you have to turn it on again because it's too hot for everyone in here. And he was like, no, I'm getting busy, and you know, I'm speaking about this uh, body feeling he had. And then I was like, okay, let me have it. Uh, and then I put it right next to me, and then 
actually wrong again and now, so they're again thinking, you know, oh, it's just it's typical excuses. But then after five minutes with the fan next to me, I asked for this, and then I was like, okay. <laughs> He was right, you know, it was not pleasant having him right next to you. And I put it away, but, so, but again, I was just generalizing in terms of yeah. this is his autism, you know, and this is just typical yeah. him, typical excuses, yeah. and he just, he just wants his way. Yeah. It's easier, isn't it? <coughs> you don't really have to engage. Yeah. That's a great example. Thank you. <clears throat> Let's read to the very end of this page, and then we'll, we'll keep going, because I think what Michael just said really gets captured. When Buddhas are truly Buddhas, they don't necessarily notice that they're Buddhas. However, they are actualized Buddhas who go on actualizing Buddhas. <laughs> it's so good. And I think this helps make sense of the previous paragraph. When Buddhas are truly Buddhas, that's you, you don't necessarily notice that you are a Buddha. But since you are actualized, you go on actualizing other Buddhas. And when you are really in your life and being yourself, you go on giving the space for others to fully be in their life and actualize themselves. But, according to the last paragraph, there are those who continually realize beyond realization. In other words, you don't stop. He is suggesting, perhaps, that Buddha nature is not something that becomes a trait or a state, but rather is the actualization of your life. And in that process, with the autistic boy and the fan, you are giving permission for that boy to not be autistic. And then you are actualizing his Buddha nature, but you don't even know it, because what you're actually working on is your own. But you don't even know it. And you could also say it the other way around, that he, this boy, set it up. He set up the conditions. Or if the fan is a sentient being, maybe the fan set the whole thing up for the two of you to actualize yourself. And the fan realized that morning, I'm always a fan, and I just go around in circles. It's so dizzy, people don't realize how dizzy it gets. Being a fan, I'm going to let them feel what it's like to be a fan so I can have a break. And that fan didn't realize that she was setting up the conditions for their fanness to emerge. 
And in doing so, they, they fanned each other into Buddhahood. And I'll say it again, that this is written by someone who lost both his parents when he was a young kid. And this is not somebody smoking pot in a park, philosophizing about life. This is somebody with an agenda, trying to resolve something, and the fact that it's being, it's being worked with in the context of someone who suffered from impermanence. Uh, give some weight to this document, this teaching, that it's urgent. We chant every day, life and death are of supreme importance. Time passes swiftly and opportunity is lost. Let us awaken. The opportunity is lost as soon as you see that person as eternally autistic. And if they're autistic, what are you? When Buddhas are truly Buddhas, they don't notice they're Buddhas. He really cuts through here. However, they're actualized Buddhas who go on actualizing Buddhas. That line makes me think of a really um, American patriotic reference. If you ignore all the like inherent uh, patriarchy and racism of colonial times, uh -huh. yeah, we'll just put that aside. Yeah, he was like the only white man who didn't want to be the first president of the United States, mm -hmm. and that's why they, they figured he would be the best guy for the job because mm -hmm. he was like the only one who didn't want that power. And in a you know new democracy, figured yeah. he would be the best one to lead that. Yeah. There's a wonderful story about an activist during the Vietnam War who every single day of the war, he stood in front of the White House with a candle. And he stood there year in and year out with this candle. And one day a reporter came to him after two years, I guess, and said, um, what are you doing? Why do you stand out here? You know what the seasons are like in Washington, D.C.? Why are you standing out here? Uh, today, we can imagine someone standing with a candle, maybe they have a good hat or whatever. But all year, with a candle, every single day? And uh, they said, what are you doing? Like, this is going to do nothing. Standing out here with a candle, what is that going to do? And in this interview with this reporter, he described how he held that candle and he meditated on that candle so that the different uh, movements of thought in the culture didn't change his mind about his belief that this war was wrong. And that's what he was doing. It was like he was holding on, trying to stay centered in what he really believed. And this was his protest. This was his act. Uh, totally internal. But really, you could also say, there's a great story of Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche, 
teaching in San Francisco. You can, the transcript is really good. And he's talking about activism. And somebody says, well, here we are, 200 people sitting in a room, meditating. How is this going to change foreign policy? And he responded saying, here we are, 200 people sitting in a room, and just by sitting here in a room, we're not doing anything wrong. <laughs> I loved this, this response. Finding out inside us, and this goes back to our practice, what's real? What's real? And like I've said 10 times today, and that question has urgency. It has urgency because this is fleeting. This is fleeting. And when you're a Buddha, you create the conditions for other Buddhas. And you don't even know it. And as soon as you do, you're a sentient being. Trying to wake up other Buddhas, other sentient beings. Yeah. But I wonder if non-interference is actually doing no harm or... I mean, it's a good question, but like, in terms of karma, the rippling effects of one person's actions, and, mm-hmm. um, I mean, what is the effect of non-interference in a situation? I mean, we talked about it in relation to Basho. Yeah. Um, it's a deep question to ask, right, and to continue to ask, mm-hmm. but I don't think that it's doing nothing. Uh-huh. I think it does produce effects. Yeah. Yeah, in Burma, what did the monks do as the protest that pissed the government off the most? Does anybody remember what happened two, three years ago now? What did they do that really got the government angry? Thich Nhat Hanh called it non-cooperation. Does anybody remember what they did? Well, how, does, how do people get benefit in that worldview from the monks? They give alms. And the monks took their alms bowls and turned them upside down and walked through the streets so that you couldn't give them any alms. Because where do they get their funding from and their food? The government. And they wouldn't take anything. It's an amazing act. And people call you know this pacifism or, you know, but that that's aggression, actually. It's a kind of nonviolent aggression. I like this word non-cooperation. It's not pacifism. When you sit on your, or passivity, when you sit on your cushion keo and you are working with your irritation and your uh, impatience, that, that work is benefiting. Um, maybe we can't see it from the outside, but it's benefiting people. And furthermore, we all know stories of people who've studied with really good teachers. I'm sure you all heard stories where eventually the teacher says, go now. It's usually when the student's getting really good at concentration practice. And then the teacher says, enough. Go. Go go move to England. Go move to Thailand. Go move to California. And start teaching and share and, and go do something with this. Don't try and get anywhere. So I think your point is right on the on the money. Well, I, 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 yeah. I mean, I guess for me, some of the 
women's environment, I think, or when I feel inactive, and when uh -huh. I haven't met a moment in the way that I thought that I should. Uh -huh. And in some ways, what I took from the Basho um, discussion we had was that, in some ways, he carried that moment uh -huh. when he continued on his pilgrimage, and that that becomes the kind of at the center of his work um, mm -hmm. and his creativity. And um, so I do think that, I mean, I was also thinking about what Martin Luther King said, which was that now is not the time like for the luxury of cooling down. And he said uh -huh. that at the height of the civil rights movement, like there are moments in history, like maybe even the Vietnam War when the man is building the candle where um, there's just kind of fire, right? And, mm -hmm. um, and those are the moments when I feel most tested in, in my life uh -huh. um, about the kind of benefits of non-interference or yeah. So it's not. It's just. It's just a statement. It's an open yeah. question. Mm -hmm. um, after the G twenty, like I found it really hard to go back to practicing and feeling like, like, the really subtle interface that you can work at was worthwhile after something that was so obvious, where things just be at such a really obvious meeting point of problems. And that's really just a comment because um, I think it's, it's nice talking about, about practice being so central. And, and yet I still feel like I have this question about how much practice and when practice can. Actually, I misread this sentence down here that says, um, further those who are continue realizing beyond realization. And maybe I misinterpreted it, but I read it as those who practice beyond the need for practicing too, like when have you done, when, it, when have you had enough practice and, and can do it something else? Mm -hmm. or, but then also where, where there is that internal interface that you can work at in a sitting practice where even when you're, you're just in your sitting practice, you can be undoing the problems of capitalism just by tuning into something. But feeling that it's worthwhile is maybe the hard part, or has felt like the hard part. Yeah, I think I, what I want to do is I, I just want to wrap up this section, and then I thought we would have a break, and then we would talk together. Yeah? Is that okay? And then we'll, yeah? Um, because I think if we go all the way through till 3, we'll be hot and tired. Yeah? Are you hot and tired already? No, I have said odd and tired. That too. <laughs> um, I was just going to end with a poem by Basho. Um, Basho had an experience of awakening several times in his life. One of them was in a place called Suma on a beach in the summertime under the full moon where he thought maybe he experienced what the Buddha experienced. The Buddha was a star, Basha was a full moon. And you might know, in, in, uh, metaphorically, the full moon represents wholeness. The poem goes, Full moon, something is missing. Summa in summer. Full moon, something's missing. Summa in summer. So it's traditional in that haiku form that you put the 
season and the place at the end of the poem. So, so the core of the poem is not that it was at Summa and Summa. The core of the poem are those first two lines. There is a full moon, which is like saying, I'm awake. And then he says, something is missing. And you might know this about the Buddha's story. He has his experience of awakening, and he stays with it for a few days. And then he realizes something's missing. And in that realization, he gets up, and he goes and tries to find his students, his old students, to start sharing with them. And he spends the first few days feeling like something's missing and debating in his mind, thinking that he probably, and some of you know this from the Buddha's very early sermons, that he talks a lot about if people didn't really get what he was teaching, he would be extremely frustrated. And he didn't think people would understand. And Basho is the same. He has this experience of a full moon, and something's missing. You have this experience of sitting here and becoming still and working with what's going on. And if we just kept sitting here, something's missing. And I love to see this at the end of retreats where we've been sitting and it ends and suddenly people have so much energy. So much energy. And there's a rule in the Vipassana world which is at the end of retreat you shouldn't make any life decisions for two weeks. And I, I use the opposite rule. As soon as you come off retreats, you should decide everything within 24 hours. Everything. The next five years, 24 hours. Whatever you really think in that moment, that's what you need to do. Yeah. Something's missing. Someone's going to sue you. When I, when I came back from New Year's retreat... I'll share this with you. Then I came back from New Year's retreat. I felt so good. So the retreat this past New Year's was so amazing. A few of you were on it. It was a beautiful retreat. And uh, I came back. The first thing I did before my email was I got on Craigslist and I looked up spaces for rent. And the first one that came up was the space on 123 Bellwoods. I called them said, I'm coming. I, on the way, I called three friends who were on the retreat, Geraldine, uh, Esther, and Andrea, Madison, Copenhagen, Toronto. And I said, come on, we're going to go look at this space. We went, we walked in, and it was just obvious. I had no, I, I had no thought we were going to move. Mm. And, and so within less than 12 hours after the retreat, mm. we had a new space. <laughs> so when this retreat ends on July 21st, 20, whatever, on the 24th, you'll know. All that stuff you're worrying about right now, should we stay together and not stay together? Stay together and not stay together. Okay, the first week we'll stay together. The second week we won't stay together. The third week we'll only email. The fourth week we'll see each other every other day. So just, you can drop it. You'll know on the 23rd. Because right now something's missing. Okay. Let's have a short smoke break and then uh
We'll talk together.